Hey, good morning. So today we're reading from 2 Thessalonians, all of chapter 2. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And when the, and when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we, ought always to, but we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, Stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Thanks, Jules. So is that all perfectly clear, that passage? What's going on? <laughs> I'm glad you're here this morning. Good to see you all here this morning. I spent uh, significantly more time than usual working on this passage for obvious reasons. Uh, it's pretty weird and confusing. So I'll pray for us that God will help us and especially me and then we'll jump in. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you for your word in all its goodness and richness and truth. And Lord, this passage this morning, it's a tricky one. And so we pray that you help us by your spirit to understand it because 
And we want to know your word and we want to obey your word. So help us to understand it so that we might be able to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're thinking about Satan this morning and we're thinking about the day of the Lord uh, this morning as well. Uh, the day when Jesus will return. And Paul explains that the reason that the Thessalonians can be sure that Jesus hasn't returned yet, despite what some people are saying, is because Satan is still at work among them. That's the reason they can be confident that Jesus hasn't come back. And I can assure you, friends, that Satan is at work among us too, although maybe we don't think about him rightly or wrongly. Um, we are right to believe that Jesus is far, far, far more powerful than Satan is, but I think we also underestimate the power of the work of the devil in our lives and in our families and in our church as well. After all, Satan's greatest trick is to convince people that he doesn't exist, that he's not doing anything at all. Um, all this talk about Satan in this chapter, in chapter 2, this man of lawlessness, um, made, reminded me of the screw tape letters. Has anyone read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis? It was written originally in 1942, Second World War time, and it's a defense of the Christian faith, and it's written from the perspective of a hypothetical senior devil who's talking to a junior devil. The junior devil's name is Wormwood, okay? And Wormwood's job, he's been charged to try to lead this one Christian person astray. That's his job, uh, Wormwood's job. And so he kind of takes his instruction from the senior devil. And I'll read to you a little bit. And it's written in kind of bizarre sort of language. I'll just read to you a couple little bits that talks about this idea of Satan seeking to actually conceal himself. My dear Wormwood, I wonder you should ask me whether it's essential to keep the patient, that's the Christian, in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command, by the devil. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. I do not think you'll have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination, will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights, holding a pitchfork perhaps, and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it's an old textbook, it's an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you and on it goes. The book is genius to read. It's so clever and it just puts its finger on so many ways that we go astray in our thinking and in our lives. And it's getting on a hundred years ago that he wrote this, 80 years ago. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote this and it's as true today as it was then. Satan's greatest trick is to convince us that he doesn't exist, that he's not at work in our lives. How much should we be concerned about the work of the devil? And how does a hope-shaped future give us a healthy respect for the devil without giving us a worrying concern about the devil? Well, we're going to find out. 
chapter 2 starts with this church full of people who are being told lies about the coming of Jesus, and it's worrying them, it's concerning them. Look again at verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, Paul, Timothy, the leaders of the church, whether by a prophecy or by word or of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Paul's writing to assure them that the day of the Lord has not yet happened. In the first letter, they were worried that their friends who had fallen asleep, who had died, had missed out that Jesus had come and gone and they'd missed out. Now they're concerned that they've missed out, that Jesus came and then he went again and they were kind of at work or in the toilet or something and they didn't see it. And now people are saying the day of the Lord has already happened. Paul wants to assure them, no, it hasn't happened. It's false teaching that says the day of the Lord has already happened and you've missed out. It's false teaching that says this is exactly when the day of the Lord is going to happen as well. The Bible's very clear we don't know when the day of the Lord will come. Paul says the reason you can be assured it hasn't happened yet is because the man of lawlessness has not yet been fully revealed. Okay. Who or what is the man of lawlessness? I'm going to actually take questions after this section, okay? And then again, we'll have a question time at the end. So if you, <laughs> it starts to get confusing. And if you've got any, want to ask a clarifying question, we'll have a moment for that. Who or what is the man of lawlessness? Verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. What's that mean? And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember? that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, cutie. <clears throat> now, we don't know what Paul, things Paul's told them exactly. When he says, I've told you these things, remember? We don't actually saw what he meant. We don't, we don't have every single thing that Paul said to the church. So not sure what he's, what he's talking about there. Clearly, there's things the Thessalonians knew that we don't know. And it's for that very reason we must approach this passage of Scripture particularly with the greatest humility, as others sometimes haven't uh, in the past. We must come to this with great humility. It's a tricky passage and there's things we don't know. There's a famous theologian and preacher and author named Dr. Leon Morris, and he describes the passage in this way. This passage is probably the most obscure and difficult in the whole of the Pauline writings, and the many gaps in our knowledge have given rise to extravagant speculations. And the great author Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said, I've got no idea what Paul's talking about here, and he left it at that. <laughs> Dunno. So it's with humility we come to this passage, and we don't want to assert with full confidence exactly what Paul's saying, but 
we do want to take God's word seriously. And we want to work hard to try to work out what God, what Paul's saying here in God's word. Many, many people have made speculations as to when this supposed rebellion will occur, how long it will last, and when the day of the Lord will finally come. There's been many speculations throughout the centuries. Um, one of the most common, I think, misconceptions is the premillennialist view that Satan will be revealed and then reign for a thousand years before Jesus finally deals with him. And I think this passage clearly shows that that's not the case. That's not the case. Um, but see for yourself what you think. <clears throat> There's four names or titles given to the man of lawlessness in verses 3 and 4. And the man of lawlessness, you may have some sort of background knowledge there, he's referred to as the Antichrist in John's letters, in a couple of John's letters. So man of lawlessness, Antichrist, kind of, kind of one and the same. So there's four names here. Uh, the first name is the lawless one. He's opposed to the law. The second is the one, the doomed one, the son of destruction. It says he's doomed. If, our, if hope is our future, destruction is his future. Thirdly, he's the enemy because he opposes God. He's the opposer of God, always working against God. And fourthly, we could kind of describe him as the climber. He's always looking to assert himself above all others. He's always looking to place himself in the place of prominence, uh, in this case, the temple of God. He sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. It reminds me of Jesus' confrontation with Satan in the wilderness, where Satan says, you know, just bow down and worship me and I'll give you uh, these things. He tries to confront God and he also tries to assert himself as God, over God. He opposes God. He self-asserts, this man of lawlessness, Instead of obeying the law and bowing before the Son of God, he asserts himself and the result will be destruction. Now, throughout history, there have been moments where this self-assertion in the temple of God moment seems to have happened. Does that make sense? There's been moments throughout history where this kind of self-assertion in the temple of God moment this particular type of rebellion seems to have happened. In 169 BC, Antiochus IV, also known as Epiphanes, entered the temple in Jerusalem. This is before Jesus came into the world. He entered the temple in Jerusalem. He erected an altar to Zeus in the Holy of Holies, and it's believed that he sacrificed a pig on the Holy of Holies. And this, this seems to be a clear fulfillment of Daniel 8, Daniel chapter 7, verses 8 not Daniel 8, chapter 7, verses 8 and 25, where he has set himself up in the Holy of Holies and desecrated it. There seems to be a desecration of the temple by the man of lawlessness. The Jews saw another example of the abomination of desolation in the Roman general Pompey, who in 63 BC defeated their nation, captured Jerusalem and desecrated the temple again, by intruding into the Holy of Holies. It seems that Daniel's prophecy that this little horn would rise up was fulfilled 
in Antiochus and perhaps again in Pompey. But Jesus was clear that Daniel's prophecy had not been completely fulfilled, either in Antiochus or Pompey, but awaited a further fulfillment. For he repeated or confirmed the prophecy, Jesus said, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, when you see it in the future, so these things happened before Christ came, and then Jesus talks about this happening in the future. When you see it standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus' prophecy seems to be fulfilled in 66 to 70 AD when the Babylonians came in and desecrated and conquered the temple again and desecrated the temple. Um, Luke certainly understood that the abomination of desolation related to the Roman siege of Jerusalem in 66 to 70 AD. Sorry, Rome, not Babylon, Rome in 66 to 70 AD uh, destroyed the temple. Um, and then we get to Paul. Paul possibly had Caligula, another man of lawlessness, in mind when 10 years after Paul's time, he too desecrated God's temple. Now, Paul knew that Daniel's prophecies were still partially unfulfilled. And he borrows from Daniel's phraseology as he talks about this man of lawlessness who is to come or has come. Now, I know you probably didn't catch all that that I just said, and that's okay. Because my point is this. The man of lawlessness isn't just a specific person coming in a specific time and specific place, but rather it's symbolic. And there's been fulfillments of this man of lawlessness person or event throughout history many times. We've seen this man of lawlessness fulfilled. So if we're right in suggesting that sitting in God's temple, 2, 4, 2, 4, verse 4, is a symbol of arrogance and even blasphemy, rather than a specific reference to Herod's temple in Jerusalem, then Paul paints a picture of a rebellion that's, that's global rather than local. And the temple in mind isn't a specific building, but God's church, God's people. Did you catch that? The man of lawlessness is, a sim is symbolic of those who would pit themselves against God and set themselves up in the most profound of ways as God themselves, in opposition to God. These powerful figures, and we've seen them throughout history. Some literally desecrated the temple of God. Others set themselves up against God and against his church, hence desecrating the temple of God, desecrating God's temple, his church. The Antichrist is more of a, an end times type concept, an eschatological figure. As I mentioned, John speaks about this Antichrist in his letters, the one who would deny the resurrection of Christ. Indeed, anybody who does not accept that Jesus is risen is Antichrist, the Antichrist. So there's this process of reinterpretation and reapplication of Scripture from within itself, from Daniel through to Jesus, through to Paul and to John. And this ought to give us flexibility in our understanding rather than 
rather than causing us to nail this, this down, this, what, this teaching down to a specific event at a specific time, the fact that there's been these partial fulfillments of this man of lawlessness throughout history ought to cause us to broaden our understanding out to a concept rather than a specific event. It, it prepares us for the conclusion that the prediction of the Antichrist during the course of church history, the man of lawlessness, has had multiple fulfillments and will have more in the future. The man of lawlessness has come in the form of many throughout history, many who have put themselves in opposition to God and set themselves up as gods themselves. There's been world rulers who've called themselves God, who've created statues to themselves, who've asked people to bow down to them lest they be killed. The rebellion then is already happening and it has been happening for a long time and it will continue to happen into the future. The rebellion is people, anyone, who sets themselves up against God and as these clear figures throughout history. So it's unwise to look for one particular man of lawlessness in such a way that we pronounce all the other ones as false, if that makes sense. Some today are saying that Putin is the, the man of lawlessness or the billionaires who are banding together in the name of climate change. They're the man of lawlessness and that the end is near. Maybe the end is near and maybe they are a type of man of lawlessness just like the many types in the past who have set themselves up against God. But we can't be sure that they're the last type of this man of lawlessness as this rebellion against God continues. I'm going to take questions. <laughs> Is there any questions at this point? Does that make sense? Is that nods, shake heads? It's not a specific event necessarily. It's, it's this continuing event. Yeah? Hitler? Yep. Stalin? Yep. Perhaps, perhaps, anyone who sets themselves up as these kind of God-type figures and, and in, in opposition to God, yeah, yep. rather than in submission to Jesus, yep. So can you apply that then to just any kind of general person who would go, no, I'm the God of my own life and I rule my own way? Can you then apply that to anyone? Well... The Bible teaches that this, the, the Antichrist concept is, yes, anyone who's, who's opposed to the rule of Jesus, yes, is, is in, in essence an Antichrist. Is that the kind of man of lawlessness moment that this is talking about? Not necessarily, but there is a correlation, yeah. Any other questions at this point? I, kind of, I think it'll come together a bit more at the end. But that was the easy bit. Adam. Yes. Yes, a general fulfillment that's exemplary in these particular figures that we have seen throughout history and people have pointed to, um, even in the Bible, um, and we'll continue to see. 
Okay, verses six to eight are kind of like that last climb to the summit of a mountain, you know, when you just get into the summit, and then you're going to get the view and then go down the other side and it gets easy, okay? So we're still climbing to the summit of the mountain at this moment before that nice cruisy walk downhill from there. All right. So we're going to think about the coming of the lawless one, who the restrainer is, and who's being restrained. So just to remind you, look again at verse 6. Now you know what is holding him back, the man of lawlessness, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he's taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. If you go looking at the handout, we've got this who's restraining who in the zoo uh, excursus. Now, who's holding who back exactly? Um, your instinct is probably God holds Satan back. Whose instinct? Is that if, if you're brave? Yep. Um, that's our instinct as we read it, and that, that logically makes sense. God holds Satan back. That's very common uh, way to interpret this passage. But verse 7 says, you hold him back until he, the restrainer, is taken out of the way. So I don't think that holds because God's obviously not going to get taken out of the way in any way, shape, or form. The actual most common theory amongst commentators is the government is restraining the man of lawlessness. The government restrains Satan, and this, this accords with Paul's teaching in Romans 13, that we ought to submit to the governments. And Paul's teaching is that ultimately governments are in place to prevent chaos. They're not, they don't do a whole lot of kind of really proactive, positive good, but they do prevent chaos. They keep some order. That's what they do. And in that sense, they're restraining evil from just sort of going bonkers in the world and they're being mass anarchy. So in that sense, the governments are restraining Satan. That's the most common view. Um, and again, we approach this with humility. You need to think for yourself what you think this is saying. I don't think that's right either. And I think there's a different translation of this passage that makes more sense. Something that rubs me the wrong way with that thinking about it's the government restraining is the way in which governments function as the man of lawlessness so many times. The Roman emperors, North Korea, Hitler, Stalin, as we just said, so many times governments function like this man of lawlessness. So how can they be the ones restraining then the man of lawlessness? I don't feel comfortable with that theory personally. Now, a good friend of mine pointed towards pointing me towards a paper written by Michael Stead. Praise God for my good friend. I didn't know it was in here. Uh, in Donald Robinson, former Archbishop's selected work. So Michael Stead is a bishop of South Sydney, and he wrote a paper on this part of 2 Thessalonians 2, legend. I had Michael as my Old Testament lecturer in fourth year. He taught me Zechariah. It was the best. I highly recommend you do four years of more college just for that class in fourth year. Um, he's got a different theory, which I like, and let's see if you like it as well. Remembering we want to work hard in the Bible and we want to be humble 
and not be too confident in asserting that we've got it right. Okay, now, here's a theory. When it comes to verse 6, so look at verse 6. Um, can you read that? Can you read that? Can, everyone, can anyone not read that? It's all right? Can you read it? So, <laughs> um, verse 6 in the NIV says, And now you know what's holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. In the NRSV, and you know what's now holding, restraining him so that he may be revealed when his time comes. You know what is restraining him now that he may be revealed in his time, ESV. And you know what currently restrains him so that he will be revealed in his time, Holman. And the King James says, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. What's the difference between the first four and the last one? Anyone spot it? Yeah. Doesn't say him. It just says restraining. Good spot. Well done. Does this mean the New King James always gets it right? No, no, no. Um, but this time I think it does. Uh, the hymn, looking at the Greek text, the hymn isn't there. This is an over translation, I think, to add in hymn, which, as we've said, Looking at Romans 13, and it kind of makes sense. I think it's an over-translation. And I want you to see what you think as you think about this passage in the context of the whole letter. What makes most sense? So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to look at these verses 6 to 8. Try to think about it in the context of the whole letter. What makes the most sense? How are you going? You going all right? It's hard work this morning, isn't it? Um, if... We take out the hymn, then the most, the clearest, the, the plainest reading of the text is that Satan is the one who is doing the restraining. And it's the church that he's restraining. Now you know, wow, I'm outside now. Oh, it's kind of loud and echo. Can you turn it? <laughs> it sounds terrible. <laughs> um, it's a bit echoey, I think. I have to turn it down or turn it off. Please. Sorry? Is that all right? Okay. Um, can you turn it down a bit? Is it still out there? No. Oh, you... Well, everyone seems happy in here, so turn it back on if you want. Um, now you know. So we can read verse 6 like this. Have I got it? Now you know, Thessalonians, the oppression, the restraining, until he's revealed in his time. You, you know the oppression you're going through from the devil now, the restraining, and that's going to continue until Satan is revealed in good time. Satan is the one doing the restraining, and it's the church that he's restraining. This has a lot of biblical support. Satan is described in the first letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 3 as the tempter. Satan is described in 1 Timothy 5.14 as the oppressor. In 1 Peter 5.8 as the adversary. In Revelation 12, the accuser. In Revelation 19, the destroyer. And in verse 3 of our chapter today, 
He's described as the one who opposes God and his people. The church in Thessalonica would be familiar with the idea of Satan restraining, holding them back. Um, if you look at chapter 1, have a look at, cha- have a look at um, sorry, have a look at uh, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles open, that's helpful. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 18. Brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. Satan is a restrainer, he's a blocker, he's an accuser, he's a tempter, he's constantly at work on the people of God, the church, that is the temple of God. That teaching is so clear. The Holy Spirit, God, has always always dwelled in the temple and the temple is now us. Satan is setting him, trying to set himself up in God's temple, which is the church. He's the one restraining the church. He's the one trying to lead it astray. He's the devil sending his little devils to try to lead the people of God astray from following God. You know the oppression, the restraining that's going on now until he's revealed in his time. Satan's secret and mysterious work, mysterious power is at work in the world. He tries to conceal his work in ways that we don't see and don't understand. So verse 7 then could read like this. For the mystery of lawlessness, the work of Satan is already at work. The oppressor himself until he's taken from the midst. So Satan's at work in the church until he's removed from the midst of the church. I think is a good translation of verse 7. So then we have this. Let me read all of it. Now you know the oppression until is revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The oppressor himself, until he's taken from the midst, from our midst, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will destroy with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the manifestation of his coming. Satan's at work in the church, trying to lead her astray. You know that, Thessalonians? I know that. I've taught you this before. But he will be exposed. And on that day, brought to nothing by Jesus, by the breath of his mouth and the splendor of his coming. Clearly this day hasn't come because Satan's still at work. The rebellion of Satan and the men of lawlessness continues throughout the world in an opposition to God's church. Satan is doing his best to restrain God's people and his church, at least as much as he's able to. He's not as powerful as Jesus, nowhere near it. Ultimately, nothing can stand in the way of God's kingdom coming and growing and being consummated on the day of the Lord. On that day, all things will be brought to light, all sins exposed, all evil exposed, including the work of the devil. On that day, the devil will be revealed and swiftly dealt with by the breath of the Lord and the splendor of his coming. The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will destroy. 
just by the manifestation of his coming, he'll be brought to nothing. He's doomed to destruction. Does that make sense? There'll be no resisting the splendor of the king for Satan. He'll be dealt with. And the day he is revealed and the day he is destroyed are one and the same day. In fact, one and the same moment. On that day, he'll be removed from being able to function in the church in the way that he's trying to. He'll be exposed for the evil tyrant that he is and he'll be dealt with decisively by our Lord Jesus once and for all. What a great day that will be. No thousand years of terror of of Satan ruling the earth. No kind of thousand years of rule of God's people or anything like that. Satan will be revealed and he'll be dealt with on the day of the Lord. And we don't know when that will be. The Bible is clear the day will arrive like a thief in the night. You don't expect a thief to come. You don't know when he's going to come or she. Not sure what the ratio of men to female to female thieves there are out there. You don't know when they're going to come. We don't know when the Lord's going to return, but we do know we won't miss it. We need not worry like the Thessalonians were worrying. He will come with the trumpet blast and with the army of angels and the dead will rise on that day. I think this makes the most sense of the passage in the context of the letter, and indeed both the letters, of what's going on. The day of the Lord will be a wonderful and terrible day. Some will rise to everlasting joy, to some to destruction. And again, Paul seems to be speaking generally in verses 9 to 12. We're on the way back down the mountain now. Whew. He's not speaking about a specific moment in time. He's speaking about this present age, which makes most sense of verses 9 to 12. Satan has and will continue to use magnificent signs and wonders through his men of lawlessness to convince people to believe in his men of lawlessness. Men of lawlessness talk a big game, right? They seem impressive. They have Satan's cunning and guile on their side and tragically many believe the lie and then submit themselves to these prominent world powers, rather than submitting themselves to God. They believe the lie, they're deceived, and subsequently they perish. Because, verse 10, they believe the lie rather than the truth. They trust in the men of lawlessness rather than God. They have an opportunity to love the truth. God is clear about that in Romans 1. But they deny the truth. And sacrifice salvation and choose destruction. What are the great lies of our day that people are tragically, sadly believing in? Wealth will save us. Green energy will save us. Green energy is fine, but it's not going to save us. We worship self. We so worship self in our culture today that we firmly believe we have the right to even choose gender or choose to be an animal in our day and age, to choose when we die or when our relatives should die. We have, this, we have asserted ourselves as God, like the man of lawlessness does. It is God who chooses 
if we're a boy or a girl. It is God who chooses if we live or if we die. We have become so inhumane in our culture. I don't know if you saw this on the news, but it was horrible. 800 pairs of baby booties were made and laid on the Parliament lawn to represent all the babies in the last decade or so who've survived termination event attempts and then just been left to die. If a baby survives a termination, it has no rights. It's not given medical care. It's not given pain relief. The child is just left to die of its own accord. This is happening in our country. And it's horrific. We've set, our, we've set ourselves up as a country, as a man of lawlessness, as a, as a, as a godless place in so many ways. Our country is greatly deceived by the evil one. And it seems to be increasing. We oppose God more and more, more and more. Our laws are moving away from submission to God into opposition to God. As Christians, we mustn't forget that the devil is at work in our country, in our lives. A healthy appreciation of the work of Satan ought not lead us to fear or dread. We fear the Lord and him alone. But a healthy appreciation of the work of the devil ought to lead us to prayer and concern for the evil that is happening in our midst by those created in God's image. If not the whole world, at least concern for our nation. The consequence of Satan's work is God sends a delusion so that the people will continue to believe the lie rather than the truth. In Romans 1, Paul writes that God gives people over to their sinful desires. And that's what we see here in Thessalonians. And so we hope for the future, don't we? A lot. We shape our lives based on this glorious future that is to come when Satan will be defeated and no longer oppose us, no longer work in our world. What a glorious day will be when he's revealed and crushed. But what a terrible day for those who believed in him and his lies. Well, they will be crushed along with him. So what do we do until that day? Well, look at verse 13. We always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm, hold fast to the teachings we pass on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. We are followers of Jesus. Because of that, we have great hope. We have a glorious future. All we have to do is stand firm, hold fast to the teaching, hold fast to the letter. Ephesians says we're already seated in the heavenly realms right now. In Christ, Jesus says no one can snatch us from 
his hand, those the Father has given to him. We are saved. And on the last day, we'll be called into heavenly dwellings. Until that day, we stand firm. We resist the devil. We don't ignore him, but we resist him proactively. We hold fast to the teachings that have been passed on. We don't take them for granted or get complacent. We hold fast to the teachings. You're here in church. You're holding fast to the teachings. That's good. Satan is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, but he wants us to believe he's not doing anything at all. Don't believe the lie. Don't ignore him completely. Pray that you will not fall foul to him. Pray that our church will not. Pray for our country, which is in the grip of Satan's work, more and more each year, it seems. Pray for protection for yourself, your family, your church, your country against the work of the devil. Especially pray for protection for those in leadership over the church, like me. The only thing better than taking out a church member for one of Satan's devils is to take out a church leader, which causes even more damage. Satan seeks to restrain us. But remember that we have God's Holy Spirit, so stand firm. John mentioned this illustration the other day. Like you do when you're in the beach standing in the waves. You kind of, you're active, you know, the waves hit you, you've got to kind of resist, lean into them. Stand firm. It takes work. It takes constant work. So too does living the Christian life. We're constantly grounding ourselves in God's word day in and day out, constantly gathering as brothers and sisters to encourage one another. When Lara and I were in Africa a million years ago, we found ourselves in the middle of the great migration and we, we learned that zebras and wildebeests will, will work together. They stand head to tail side by side next to each other as they graze and they kind of try to congregate together. And I can't remember which is which, but one of them has really good eyesight and one of them has really good sense of smell. So they work together, hearing, hearing and eyesight. And they work together to kind of cover each other's butts, right? Always vigilant, looking out for what? Lions. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, but we... Watch each other's butts, pray for each other, encourage one another, stand firm in God's word together as we await our glorious future, the day when our Lord returns. I'm going to conclude by praying the prayer that Paul prayed in verses 16 and 17. Please join me. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loves us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. In Jesus' name, amen.